An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside End, we're pleased to have as our guest, Charlie Ruffle, co-founder and executive chairman of Kudu, a private equity firm that is changing the economics of the investing business by taking long-term passive minority stakes in successful, often boutique investment management firms. Kudu now has stakes in 23 businesses with assets under management, depending on the day, of about $60 billion. Before that, Charlie spent decades studying and reporting on the asset management and wealth management business as co-founder and CEO of Asset International, the publisher of Plan Sponsor, Chief Investment Officer, and Global Custodian, among other titles and media properties. He successfully sold the media company in 2010. I've known Charlie for more than a quarter of a century. He's an incredibly astute observer. Perhaps it's his training as a journalist, or maybe it's his passion for fly fishing, where he observes trends, context, conditions, and subtle changes in water and air in some of the more remote corners of the world. In other words, Charlie is just what you want an investor, informed, situationally aware, and ready to act, but picking his spots. We're glad to have him as our guest today. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, John. Good to chat to you. So what's your origin story? Interesting people often have interesting lives, and you've said, well, it's an immigrant story. But how did you become the person you are today? Probably no more interesting than any other immigrant story. But I grew up in South Africa, obviously at a different time and an entirely different world. Left that as a teenager to go to university in the UK and worked in London for a while after that. And then in the mid 80s, came to the States to grad school. I'd come to America once before in my first summer holiday of summer vacation when I was at an undergrad. I came in to the States. That would have been in 1977 and delivered cars around America. I did that for about three months in the summer of 77. And so I really got to see the States and I, I completely fell in love with it then. And I was always determined to come back. I'd, I'd fallen in love with the country and one way or another, I was going to find my way to it. So it's really just another immigrant story. It's somebody who, uh, you know, fell in love with this great country and was lucky enough to be able to, to stay. So when you say you fell in love with the United States. Were there specific aspects of the U.S.? What, what is it about the U.S. that makes it so attractive to immigrants to move here? If you put aside maybe the more obvious things about the beauty of the country and the size of it and the welcomeness of the people, I think what it really is uniquely and, 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 and hopefully remains to this day is it's actually a chance where you can come here and it really doesn't matter if you have a, a funny accent or didn't go to the right prep school, it really doesn't matter. You get a chance to start and create a business here. I've done that on a couple of occasions now. And um, I have never felt, not once, not in a thousand meetings, 
that I had some disadvantage because I wasn't a native born American, arguably the opposite. And so I think ultimately what it is, is that old manifestation, which is very real of this old American adage that you can be what you want to be here. I don't underestimate how difficult it is to do things, but you never, ever feel as an immigrant, at least I never did, that I was disadvantaged in any shape or form. I felt I had a chance to, to do things here. Again, it's hackneyed and, and I know things change around us and probably some of the trends in the last 20 years have undermined this somewhat, but the chance to come here and do your own thing, if you choose to go and work for a IBM or Blackstone, you have that chance, but you also have the chance to start a business. And so I think it was that, but that was more the theoretical. The practical was just how beautiful a country is, how welcoming it is, how, how open it is. This country is an open book. I feel myself incredibly fortunate to have immigrated here and got a chance to do things that I've never had in, in any other country. I don't want to presume that this country is as welcoming as it was when I came here in the in the eighties, but to me, it was unlike any other place. You've had a front row seat to watch the investment management business for a third of a century now, first as a media executive and more recently as an investor. Let's start with the big picture. What do you see as the societal purpose of asset management? And second, how well does the industry do in fulfilling that, those purposes? Is it getting better, worse? I mean, first of all, it's like any other business, right? It it needs to stand on its own two feet and, and people who, people of, of talent and energy need to be compensated and find fulfilling careers. You know, like anything else in financial services, it's not, you can fault asset management from a distance about being, you know, part of this invisible world of financial services. You're not in theory actually making things, but I think in practice, actually, and I'll try and get to your societal question in a second, but I'll, I'll try and maybe answer the more personal element of it. What really strikes me about the asset management business, and particularly the institutional asset management business, which I learned before I really understood the retail side of it. And it's a world, of course, John, you, you come out of yourself. And there's, there's no industry that's perfect, and every industry has a chair of people who behave unethically. They're few and far between in the institutional asset management business. My time observing that space and interacting with people in it, I think it's partly a function of this old, actually, British logic of the role of the fiduciary, which underpins it. I would argue that this industry, despite its quirks, actually serves its purposes really well. I think a big element of that is the fiduciary role that I'll call them plan sponsors, but that has a specific meaning that maybe should be more generic for this conversation. People charged with looking after other people's assets, I think by and large do a pretty extraordinary job. I look back at decades of either interacting with or interviewing people charged with running pools of capital from big public plans to corporate plans to foundations and endowments. And what I see is a remarkable level of integrity and intent. You know, it's incredibly easy to find exceptions to that, like in anything. But the direct answer to your question, I think, is all I'm left with from, from my interaction with fiduciaries, in the, particularly in the institutional asset management space, is actually how well they did their job. Now, there are inbuilt challenges in that space. Innovation can be stifled. 
there are all sorts of nits you can pick, but by and large, the quality and integrity of the individuals who sit at the center of those decision-making processes on the investment side, I have nothing but respect for. It's easy to be cynical about our business. People can get incredibly well compensated and you can absolutely quibble with choices of managers and there are a million things to quibble with. But the direct answer to your question, John, is that I would say that the, the impression that I was left with after decades of working in the space is actually the integrity of people in those fiduciary roles. So tell us about Kudu. Is, I understand it. You provide permanent working capital to asset managers for expansion in return for part ownership. So what do you look for in an asset management firm before you make an investment? And, and what are the warning signs that have you running the other way? The underlying thesis is that in specifically in, in sort of constrained asset classes, we're not talking large cap U.S. equity here, but particularly in constrained asset classes that boutiques are going to provide the type of of return that you might not see in larger firms, multi-asset class firms. That's the essential logic that a lot of innovation and creativity and concentration of intellect goes into these boutiques. And what we try and do at Kudu is back management teams, really. At the end of the day, we are, of course, taking stakes in businesses, but what we're really doing is trying to find boutiques and they can be in virtually any asset class. As I said before, it's really hard to find a boutique in long only US equity, which you really think can consistently add value and has clients who believe that. But I mean, there are some, and, but we're looking to find management teams in asset classes and it's mostly alternative asset classes. It doesn't have to be, but mostly. We're looking to find boutiques in that space, which have a clear value proposition and are adding value to their clients consistently. Often those boutiques for a whole variety of reasons have capital challenges. You know, it's incredibly hard to start. You, you know this. Incredibly hard to start an asset management business. It's hard now. It was hard 10 years ago. It was hard 20 years ago. Although you look at some of the behemoths that dominate the scene today, and that's when they were founded 20 years ago in the back end of ERISA. But it's really difficult to do this. And so along the way, if they can find a capital partner who will essentially not interfere in the things that are most important to them, which are how they run their business, how they invest, how they choose to grow. It really is additive, I believe, to the asset management business. We're not the only people, obviously, who understand that. But then the net result is there are a lot of really successful boutique asset managers to whom a minority capital partner, not private equity, because private equity comes with its hooks, as we all know, including the ability to force a sale. And we never do that. We're a true minority. We don't have any ability to force an exit. We're not interested in changing the arc of the growth of a company. We're just backing a management team. And I think it's proved to be a really additive element in the formation of good managers. What do the firms use your capital for? Is it for sales? Is it to build compliance systems? Is it IT? It's well, we've done 20 plus deals now and every single one has its own sort of fingerprint in terms of use of capital. Quite often, and when my partner, Rob Jakaki, and I founded this business, Rob's previous business, where he had been a co-founder and was CIO, was a group called AMF. And a lot of AMF's deals were generational transfer deals. In other words, essentially moving from the founding generation to the next, to the G2. Um, and that still is a portion of our deals. 
where essentially the founders of the firm have identified who their G2 is, and we essentially help that tran transition by making it affordable for the next G2 or facilitating it. But there are a lot of other uses of cap. We're actually comfortable with de-risking. I've never understood the logic why an asset manager, a CEO of a, or, and founder of an asset management business should have 100% of his net worth tied up in that business. We don't apply that to any other world. Why would we apply it to that world? A lot of use of capital these days we find is used for the GP commit, which is increasingly the stakes that these executives have to put up when they raise new money. And so our money is used for that GP commit. Some of it's to buy entities or to seed new products. There's no one size fits all. The GP commit, of course, you mean the portion of a fund that the general partner has put it's interesting exactly. because effectively when you work through what they're doing is they're trading their ability to have partial ownership in the fund, giving you equity in the firm in, in return for that. So You're right. There's a little irony about that because in theory, when some of these foundations and endowments began to impose that on the LPs, they, they didn't realize they were creating a different solution for it themselves. Unintended consequences, John, it's a huge issue in our industry. And, and by the way, if you look at, and I know it's one of the areas you want to talk about, the defined contributionist industry, you know, unintended consequences are often some of the real drivers of some of the changes we see in our world. And you're dead right to point out the irony of that particular one. So you mentioned the movement from defined benefit to defined contribution. I would say that's one of the hallmarks of the context in which the asset management industry works in the last 25 years, you have a master's degree in history from Cambridge. So let me ask you the historical question. How has the asset management industry changed in the last quarter century? You've pointed out one of the, the signal changes, which is this movement away from what was primarily a sort of de defined benefit world, more in theory than in practice, but nonetheless into a defined contribution world. I think the most signal change has probably actually been that. We've moved away, and when I say we, it's a, it's a global movement. It's not just American, clearly. And you look at places like, I mean, there are other places that are further down this evolutionary walk than we are. But, yeah, we've moved away, essentially, from a world where savings decisions were essentially made really with a different goal in mind than where we are today, where for some time now, the whole thesis has been that people are responsible ultimately for their own retirement. And... And we've created a body of regulation and more importantly, I suppose, legislation that now has created this monstrously large defined contribution business, which is run on fairly different principles than, I guess, the infrastructure that it succeeded. I think in answer to your question about how have things changed, we now have a machinery in place and let's, let's just for the time being keep it to America, a machinery in place where working Americans have a lot of incentives to save in their defined contribution plans. And that's really how every generation of Americans from, I guess, from baby boomers on are ultimately going to, to get to this ideal of, of retiring with, with dignity. And I actually think that the, the defined contribution business and the legislation that supports it has done a really good job in getting that world into shape. People save a lot of money in defined contribution plans. And by and large, they save it fairly efficaciously at relatively low cost in vehicles now that can always be improved, but by and large do the job. 
let me push back on you for a second, because it sounds like you're saying defined contribution is a better system than defined benefit. Among other things, defined benefit is counter-cyclical, defined contribution is yeah. first. No, let me, let me rephrase that. I don't, it, it's not better, but defined benefit plans at the end of the day, the economics were moving away from them. So I, so I don't think it's the right thing to do to hold them up as a worthy alternative because there were very few instances. I mean, there were some, but there were very few instances where the ongoing institutions of our life, whether they're particularly corporations, were going to support continued defined benefit plans. And so it's not better or worse. I think they're two very different things. And as you yourself know, John, the, the idea that even back in the 60s, I mean, defined benefit plans, let's always remember, really, they're not, I mean, they've been in existence since Bismarck, but the reality is they never covered a huge portion of the, of the market. And it took the crisis at Studebaker all those years ago, essentially, to, to really turn defined benefit plans into what they, what they began to become. But no one, there were no entities that were going to support those. It's just too risky. It's a philosophically difficult to essentially fund a, it's so much easier to fund a promise than actually deal, make the hard decisions about what you're going to pay people. And, and those promises were easy to make and hard to keep. And, you know, we're seeing those play out in some other aspects of the market, the Taft-Hartley world and et cetera. So I think I, I agree with you. There were elements to the defined benefit plan that were vastly superior. Those promises were too expensive to keep. So that's the past, or at least one yeah. version of it. Is it prologue? What's next? What's, what's the future of this thing? If we're talking about demographics, are demographics really destiny? And one thing that no one ever talks about is, is the accumulation of assets during retirement, the central feature of the asset management going forward rather than accumulation of assets to prepare for retirement. Is it technology, yeah. you know, blockchain enabled tokens that represent investment where a portfolio manager has been replaced by an AI algorithm? Is the future impact investing? I mean, what does the future look like? Well, all of those things, probably. Um, I've been surprised that, and a lot of people have been surprised that some sort of, yeah, you talked about decumulation. It's a huge fact of life, particularly for, for baby boomers. And, and somehow or other, those sort of income generating answers are only now just beginning to find their way into the defined contribution space. It's been slower than it should have been. And that's partly, I think, because for the wrong reasons, the attention has been on accumulation because that's where the money can be made. You know, insurance companies have, there probably is some new, uh, and not new, it's just, it's really just an alchemy of, I think, existing solutions. And insurance maybe will play a role in it, but there have to be better answers for income generation in retirement than there are now. And I think you're seeing progress around the margin. and. Some of that's going to come from robo-type offerings. We're going through a time in the industry now where a lot of managers, particularly the big managers, have sort of fought a relatively successful rear guard action. But I think a lot of innovation is about to, to come to the fore. You know, at the end of the day, money is about trust and value of brands that people know and trust in this business is not going away. But I think you're going to find that the big players in the space are adapting and are going to be innovative. And, and it will include pretty much 
everything you've described. I think we're coming to a time of, uh, of really interesting change. And I think the asset management itself is business. There've, there've been barriers to entry and, and, and always will be, and maybe that's a good thing. You don't want people coming in from nowhere and managing assets, but I think we're going to see a lot of successful boutiques in the next decade change things in the, in the, in the business. That's, that's what I would bet on. I mean, it's worth remembering that some of the boutiques that are now, you know, that of 20 years ago are the ones that are actually changing things today. The old big trust companies that dominated this world when you first got into it don't even exist anymore. We did a uh, podcast with Bob Rodovic, the former vice chair of BlackRock, and, you know, 20 years ago, they had zero in assets at eight people and they had a bunch of fixed income technology. So yes, it yep. happens. You have a different viewpoint to watch it all this from. You are a board member of the Public Employees Retirement System for the town in Connecticut where you live. And it is always different when you're the actual fiduciary. Has your service on that pension fund taught you anything you didn't know from the outside, whether it was a technical investing issue or perhaps how service providers treat you, or even just about your own psychology when you sit in that chair? Funny you ask that. No, um, first of all, it's an unusual little pension because it's overfunded, if you can believe it. It's the public employees of my little town in Connecticut, and it's overfunded. I've learned one more most important lesson from that, which is how important it is to have a good chairman. I'm not the chairman. We got a terrific chairman of that little pension committee, and just having him dictate the the ebb and flow of the meetings, and that's invaluable. So that's a very picayune lesson, but my God, it has taught me the importance of having a good chairman of the investment committee. No, I think probably what it's actually taught me is um, we've got an OCIO that oversees that, and uh, I'm a big believer in the OCIO model, particularly for in this highly complicated and difficult world we live in for small, for smaller let's call them more unsophisticated well, asset owners. I'm a big believer in that. And I'm always suspicious of board members, including myself, who think their understanding of the process gives them some spectacular view of what they should be doing and what they shouldn't. So I'm uh, so a good chairman and a good OCIO. That's what I've learned. Okay. So outsource chief investment officer model where you, where you, hire a firm to, to do the actual stock or, or asset or fund picking. Then uh, you set the asset allocation, the risk tolerance. So let's move away from business per se. Your friends know that one of your other true passions is fishing. And this is not casual fishing, uh, but the, this is the type of fishing that requires months of planning to go someplace truly remote to fly fish. And I think you learn a lot about people by understanding their hobbies. So my question to you is, why do you enjoy fishing? Not how, but why? Is it the challenge, it's pretty, isolation? It's pretty, what? Why it's, fishing? It's pretty simple. I like fly fishing, which is what I do because of the places it takes me. And the way it takes you there. It doesn't take you to capital cities or, or maybe the more regular way of visiting countries. It takes you to, to backwaters and, and that's what I love about it. I've, I've got to know, even in the States, I've got to know 
places like Alaska um, really well because of places I've gone spent a week fishing, sometimes just with my kids, sometimes with friends. It's where it takes me that I, that I enjoy and the circumstances in which it takes me there. Um, you know, the nice thing about fishing, if you're lucky enough to do it a particular way, is it's really very basic. And so it's uh, so elemental. And catching these beautiful fish, whether they're bonefish or steelhead, and you're returning them to the, to the river or the flats out of which they came, you're never killing anything. You're just interacting with nature. So I think the, the answer is I love fishing because more than anything else I know, it takes me to places that otherwise I, I wouldn't get to. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about and why? I guess the American West is what really interests me at the moment and um, trying to find ways where I can spend more time out there. That's on the, on the personal side. On the business side, you know, I have this job, John, where I travel around the world, actually, because I think I've got 23 investments now, five or six are outside the States and we'll do more. Um, I travel around the world meeting men and women who started asset management businesses. And these are incredibly interesting people. They have to be, you know, it's, it's the, the path most trodden is to stay at this big multi-asset class manager that pays you well to, to do what you do every day. You know, the most interesting people are the people who quit those firms and start their own businesses. And my job is to go out and meet those people and talk to them about whether outside capital at this stage of their company's development is interesting. I mean, I'd pay to have the job I have. So I feel incredibly lucky. I mean, it'd be nice to be 20 years younger and doing the job, but last time I looked, no one was giving me that option. What's the old Chinese story? The best time to plant the tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So today is what I, it's what I'm doing it and I, and I love doing it. And, you know, you sit in front of somebody in Sydney, Australia, who's explained why they've started their own healthcare private equity firm. And it is so interesting. So I like to think that, um, boy, that, that gets me up in the morning. I mean, that really does. You're talking to some of the most interesting people, I think on, on the face of the earth. It's like having a podcast. Yeah, it's like having a podcast. What are you reading right now? So my interest in history totally drives my reading. And uh, I'm particularly interested in in U.S. foreign policy in the sort of post-war time. So I read anything I can get on that. And I'm particularly interested in World War I and World War II. The book I'm reading right now is called Blood and Ruins. And it's, it's about the, it's called the last imperial war, 1931 to 1945. So that period in history really interests me. I think my, my interest in world war two is driven in no small part by my parents who both played roles in it. My dad was a fighter pilot in two hurricanes in world war two. And my mother worked for, for Admiral Mountbatten in different places around the world in world war two. So I grew up understanding it. I. As you pointed out, I read history at university and loved it. And I'm a big nonfiction guy. If I'm going to read fiction, it's probably like about a, like Martin Cruz Smith's books on his Russian detective, uh, but mostly nonfiction. 
Okay, last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I guess if I've learned anything from my career, it's always take the meeting. You know, it doesn't matter what you hear in the meeting. It doesn't matter if someone tells you they don't like what you're doing or they want something from you that you're not in a position to give them. Just always take the meeting. Our, our business is so much a function of human interaction. And coming back to the question you asked about maybe the integrity of the business, what's always struck me about this business is we all go through ups and downs in our, our careers. Business is going well, you or not, you, one moment you have a great job, next moment somehow you don't have that job. It always struck me that people I've, I've intersected with, if you can be helpful to them, nobody forgets it. There's a business that maybe arguably to a fault because it, to some extent it it reinforces sometimes a, a collegiality that can be also exclusive. But uh, the one thing I would tell everybody in this space is take the meeting and always be gracious. You know, rudeness in our business, you occasionally run into it and it always has consequences. Always, always, always. I, you know, I, you remember the people who are rude to you. So why be rude ever? Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Charlie Raffel. And apropos of his last comment, Charlie, I'm going to close by reading to you what a, a mutual friend of ours, Martin Niederloff, once wrote about you. Um, he said, I met Charlie more than 20 years ago. I was immediately struck by his charisma, energy, creativity, and most importantly, trustworthiness. What was true then remains true now. He is still delivering straight talk and unvarnished views but always with good intent and respect. He gives credit selflessly, confronts reality, and learns from his mistake. In addition to personifying these qualities, he actively works to make those around him better. Our industry is a far better place for all the people Charlie has touched. Charlie is the very definition of a trust bridge, someone who connects two parties by leveraging a common trust. Charlie, thanks for sharing your insights. Greatly appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Well, thanks, John. And thanks for that. Back to Martin for that gracious note. Undeserved, but I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCormick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John McCormick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.